Good morning. Well, this morning we've got a lot to cover. Last night was a real wake-up call with just how long it takes to go over this information. So last night, this morning, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out how I can condense all I hope to cover this morning. We're going to be looking at the formation of reform, the, the beginnings of Reformed Christianity, of the Anabaptist movement. We're going to look at the Catholic Counter-Reformation. We're going to look at the life of John Calvin. And we're also going to look at the Reformation in France and the Huguenots. So that's a lot to try to cover in one hour. It would easily fill at least a semester if you wanted to. But by way of review this morning, we looked at Martin Luther last night, and Luther's legacy was four things. He reshaped the medieval perspective on Christianity in four ways. And these four things are also the Reformation principles. So when the Reformation spread, these four things were common wherever the Reformation spread. The first way he changed it was he, how he answered, what does it mean to be saved? Before Martin Luther, God would give you some grace in the Catholic perspective, and you had to cooperate with that grace by receiving the Mass, having Christ re-sacrificed his the elements would turn into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ, and he would be re-sacrificed, which would wipe away your sins since the last time you had Mass. You would also work with God's grace as far as pilgrimages, in time in the confessional, and seeing relics, alms, good works. That was the way. When Luther came, he changed it to we are now saved by the work of Christ on the cross and salvation is a free gift that when God looks at us, he sees us as, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Now were, Luke's, were works important to the reformers? Absolutely they were important. But the reason they did the works is what changed. Before you earned your salvation to Martin Luther and John Calvin, when you fully understood the magnitude of God's gift, and you understood the goodness and sovereignty of God, and you had the Holy Spirit in you, there was no other way to live but by an act of good works and living the way that God wanted you to. So works were still very important to the reformers, but the reason for the work. So that was the first issue. What is salvation? The second issue is where is ultimate authority? To the Roman Catholics, ultimate authority came from the church and from tradition and from the Pope's authority. They kept the Bible in Latin, where very few people could read it and understand it, the few people that were literate. When Martin Luther came along and the other reformers, they wanted the Bible in the common language, so people could read what the Bible said for themselves, because for the reformers, ultimate authority was found in the scripture and the Holy Spirit giving you enlightenment as far as revealing what the scripture meant. They also used the principle of letting the Bible interpret itself. If one passage was vague, you let the scripture interpret itself. So that was the second issue. Where's authority? Before it used to be the church and the pope. Now it was the Bible. That was the authority. The third Reformation principle is what is the church? Before, it was a, a structure. It was a system. It was whatever the pope authorized. And you went there to watch a magical ritual per 
be performed, and it was where you received grace. The church was very much in between you and God. It was in the way. After Luther, the church became anybody who had received this free gift of faith. Anybody who had surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ and received his grace was now a part of the church and there was the priesthood of all believers. So everybody had equal access to God through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit. That was the third point. Fourth Reformation principle was what is a legitimate way to serve God? Before, you, if you wanted to serve God, you became a priest or a monk, you took vows of chastity, you devoted your life to the church. Luther said, anybody can serve God in any area of life and every calling is dignified. There is no sacred or secular. If you want to be a housewife, and if you're doing being a housewife to God's glory, that is every bit as valuable as the nun. If you want to be a tradesman, if you're doing that to God's glory, that's every bit as valuable as the priest and the monk. So those were the four Reformation principles that pretty dramatically changed what Christianity looked like. First one is, what does it mean to be saved? The second one is, what is ultimate authority? The third one is, what is the church? And the fourth one is, what is acceptable service to God? About a year, less than a year, after Martin Luther was born, a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli was born somewhere in that area. He was Swiss. He was a Roman Catholic, duh, as most people were back then. But he started receiving very similar principles to Luther and independent of Luther. A lot of the same ideas were striking Zwingli. Namely, salvation is found by faith alone in Christ and also the authority of Scripture. Now this is what's amazing. It shows that this Reformation was not just the work of Luther, but it was the work of the Holy Spirit and the fact that he was raising up men simultaneously to discover these principles, to set the church free, to call people back to that immediate revelation. So Zwingli was started preaching against the Swiss mercenaries. They, what mercenaries were, the Swiss were known for well-trained soldiers. And when other kings wanted to have a war, they would hire the Swiss to come fight for them. And this sometimes led to Swiss fighting Swiss when the French would hire some, and Charles V in the Spanish Empire would hire some. And Zwingli was preaching out against this, so this is a waste of human life. And that made him unpopular, because even though people were dying, this was a part of their national identity. Something else, he started also attacking the, the structure of the church. A big thing for him was that you had to fast during Lent. So one of the ways the people in Switzerland were rebelling was by eating sausage during Lent. So while the Lutherans were changed by the diet of worms, the Swiss were changed by a diet of sausage. <laughs> to thoroughly confuse you on the meanings of those words. Now, 
the form of Christianity that Zwingli chose was more austere than Luther's. Luther's principle was anything that is not forbidden in Scripture is acceptable. Organs, nothing in Scripture against organs. Let's embrace the music and as far as other celebrations. For Zwingli, his principle was anything that is not commanded in the New Testament is forbidden. Are organs commanded in the New Testament? No. So out went organs. As far as Zwingli went, there was a group of reformers who felt he didn't go far enough. They said that we need the church to Zwingli still encompassed all of society. You were baptized, which to Zwingli was equivalent to circumcision. You were baptized as an infant when you entered the Christian community, the Christian state. And they wanted to reform the Christian state, but they still wanted a Christian state where the government was Christian, where the government was encouraging very different than our state church distinction that we have today. The Anabaptists, whoops, I let it slip. They weren't called that yet. These group of, but that's where I'm going. I'll just get it out there. That's where I'm going. But these men thought that Zwingli was not going far enough. They saw the church as the spotless bride, a group of called out people who had had a conversion, who had been born again, who would be completely pure. Now an infant, you don't know if he's had a conversion experience. <clears throat> so that rules out infant baptism. What these men wanted was that a church comprised not of people who had been in church since they were kids, but a church comprised of people who had had a salvation experience. And so once they had an experience, then they decided, you know, we need to be baptized again. And people started insulting them, calling them Anabaptists. They're being baptized again. Because almost everyone had been baptized as an infant. So when you were baptized as an adult, you had to be baptized again. The reformers were very concerned about the Anabaptists because for them it was, a right, it was reviving an old heresy. I don't, you'd have to remember to my last session about Donatism where they said basically if a priest repented of his Christianity under torture and then he tried to come back and become a priest, anything that that priest performed as far as baptisms or confessions were not valid. And the church said, we can't have that because if we're questioning the validity of the personal validity of every minister, we're going to have chaos. It's not the minister who makes the sacrament valid. It's the work of Jesus Christ. So they thought this sounded a lot like Donatism. And they were also concerned about the social implications of this. Because actually these Anabaptist beliefs were almost seditious. They were just wanting to leave society. And so the reformers and the other people actually were killing the Anabaptists. And the way they did it was very cruel, was by drowning. You want to be baptized? We'll baptize you again. Except we're going to keep you under this time until you don't die. Dadwald tells a story about Conrad Grable where he was, what did you say, they tied his feet to a pole and dipped him under and his mother there was encouraging him to keep the faith until he died. 
Now, at this point, I, I, I want to have to kind of break off the story and just tell you a little bit about the Anabaptist movement. The Anabaptists were a bunch of people who, want, who saw the church as pure versus the state church. They were people who wanted to live by the Sermon on the Mount and by any principle they saw in the New Testament. They took everything they read literally. So that meant no taking oaths, which meant they couldn't take oaths of office or hold political positions. They took Jesus' warnings against turning the other cheek very seriously. So that meant they were absolute pacifists. They interpreted in Acts, where the early church held all their positions in common, to mean that you couldn't own private property. And so they lived in community where everybody owned everything. And they wanted to see it as a spotless bride. So if you had any sin in your life, you were not allowed to fellowship. You were shunned. The Anabaptists were persecuted more severely than anybody because they never caught, because none of them wanted to take political office, they never were able to develop a society where they were free, where they were not persecuted. So the Anabaptists were always on the move, always being forced into other areas. The Anabaptists became the, the Hutterites, the Amish, and the Mennonites. Those are all offspring of the Anabaptist movement. Now, what Satan does, when there's a group, a movement of God, he likes to get into part of this movement and have part of this group become so extreme and wild that when any, anybody thinks about that movement, all they can think about is the extreme radical branch of what happened. And this is what happened with the Anabaptists. A couple of radical Anabaptists were saying that Christ is setting up his kingdom on earth. We are entering this millennium. They reinstituted polygamy because they wanted to live according to Old Testament customs. One person wanted to style himself after King David and all that he did, including polygamy. Now, the authorities, they sieged the city and they starved them for several months. Finally, some of the people in the city were so hungry that they broke out and they, show, they so, showed the soldiers a, a way to get into this. This happened in a town called Munzer. They took the leaders, a guy by the name of Jan Mathis and someone else, and they hung them in a church steeple, and they were there until the 1900s. But when anybody thought of the Anabaptists, that's what they thought of. And they thought anybody who was adopting Anabaptists was going to be into social anarchy, which the whole principle of the Anabaptists was that they weren't going to fight, that they were going to be pacifists. But because that was what entered the people's mindset. So when Luther ordered the Anabaptists killed, they all had this mindset that these were very dangerous people. So at this point, we have three distinct branches of Christianity that have come off the tree of Roman Catholicism. We have the Lutherans, whose version of Christianity was very much the same. Doctrinally, all three of these were similar, but it was in practice. The Lutherans were more focused, they were more liberal. They, had, they loved worship and song and instruments, and they weren't as strict in purifying it, and they were more tolerant of things like images and decorations and things like that. The Reformed branch of Christianity, which was Zwingli, and then John Calvin, 
who continued this branch of Christianity, was very austere. They wanted simplicity, and they wanted absolute obedience to the scripture in every area. And they were paranoid about allowing anything that into their services that smacked of Roman Catholicism. So they were very strict. And then, of course, the Anabaptists who wanted to live community lives, pacifists, and were persecuted severely. As this split was happening between the Reformed and the Lutheran, the princes of the time realized we are under threat from the Catholic Church. We need, to, the Reformers, the Protestants, we need to be united. So they called for a Marburg uh, colloquy, which was a meeting of all the Reformers, including Luther and Zwingli and uh, Martin Busser from Strasbourg, who, you will, who became a friend of Calvin. They got them together and said, we need to come up with a unified front here. We need to hash out our differences. And there was 15 points up for debate. The first 14 all had to do with church practice, the order of service, what worship looked like and felt like. And they were able to come to agreement on those pretty quickly. But Martin Luther took out some chalk and wrote on the table, Hacus corpus meum, this is my body. He knew that this was where it was going to break down. To the medieval mind, communion was extremely important because this was, where, this was the essence of what the church gave you, was a place to have your sins taken away, where there was a miracle of Christianity that only happened in the church. So it was extremely important. Now Luther was very much against what this Roman Catholic idea of mass, which he called the God of dough theory, because what the Catholics believed was transubstantiation, where the elements looked, or in philosophical terms, the accidents, how it appears, they all appear the same. Taste, the smell, the feel, they all looked the same, the wine and the body, but its actual substance had turned into the body of Christ, and it was a miracle. Luther said no, but Luther came up with an idea which his opponents called consubstantiation. The Catholics believed in transubstantiation, transubstantiation, the Lutherans were consubstantiation, but Lutherans didn't call it that. Basically, Luther said Christ is bodily present during the act of communion, but not physically present. And he didn't care that it didn't make sense or logical. He said God's ways are far beyond reason. I just, Jesus said, this is my body, and I'm not going to just interpret that loosely. Zwingli said, when Jesus says, this is my body, he's not necessarily saying that we have to take this literally. Just like in the New Testament, when it says Jesus is the rock, we don't believe that he's made of granite. It's just, it's a metaphor. And so Zwingli said, what happened is communion, it's just, it's a metaphor that it's more of a, a reminder of what Jesus did. But he still believed that Jesus was there spiritually. And this, I don't, can't really get into it, but this ended up being a huge debate between Luther and Zwingli. Luther thought that Zwingli wasn't taking God's word seriously enough and was denying God's, Jesus' divinity. Zwingli thought that Luther was making a mockery of the fact that Jesus had a body and it was at, we knew where it was. And so it broke down, and it pretty much irreconcilably split the Lutheran and the Reformed branches of Christianity. There was a really radical view 
among some people that only thought that communion was just the memorial. We just did this as a ritual to remember what Christ did on the cross, which incidentally is what the majority of the North American church believes. It's just interesting how something that was so important to the reformers, we've just basically dismissed. And so I think there is more mystery and there's more to what happens in communion than maybe a lot of us have come to accept. Okay, at this point, Briefly want to talk about Charles V. He was of the Habsburg line. He was a grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella. He was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. The King of France, Francois I, made sure he kept Charles V busy. From as soon as Charles V became Emperor, they fought for five years over land claims. Charles V captured Francis, or Francois I, made him sign a treaty. As soon as Francois got off, he broke the treaty, and he, signed, he aligned with the Pope and started another battle with Charles V. So Charles V rounded up his soldiers again and again attacked Francois, and he captured the Pope virtually, kept the Pope under his thumb. Remember that because that's going to play a key role in the history of England that time period where Charles V had the Pope under his thumb. He forced Francis into writing a second treaty, which, as soon as he went back home, he broke again, and this time Francois aligned with the Turks, and again fought Francois I. He ended up signing four different treaties. But you know, thankfully, Charles V was so busy fighting these wars, because it left him distracted, and it left the revolution of the Reformation that was happening here, time to grow without persecution from the princes. But in between, any time Charles V was not at war, he tried to stamp out this rebellion that was happening among the Protestant princes. At first, he, had a, he moved the Diet, which was the Council of Princes, to Augsburg, where if, if you, any of you were Lutheran, you would know the Augsburg Confession of Faith. That's what Philip Melanchthon wrote up in an attempt. Charles V, he wanted unity among his people. So what he did was he tried to write up a confession that Catholics and Lutherans could agree on. And Philip Melanchthon made it as watered down as possible, but it was still so far from what the Catholics were able to accept. But anyways, the princes, in the long short of it, they formed together the Schmalkaldic League, which is just fun to say. You can, Schmalkaldic, it was the Schmalkaldic League, where the princes, the princes got together and fought against Charles V. Anyway, it led to a series of wars with Charles V, and finally, when Germany was much beleaguered, I think it was around 1555, they signed the Peace of Augsburg which said that each prince has the right to choose the religion for his region. So if a prince was Catholic, he said he made, would make Catholicism his state religion. If a prince was Lutheran, he'd make the state religion Lutheran. There was no provision made for Anabaptists or for the Reformed branches of Christianity at this point. How did the Catholics respond? to this Reformation? Well, 
It took a long time for them to do anything because the Pope was in, entangled up in different wars. But when the church realized that this was a serious problem, they moved in, they did a few things. The Pope brought back the Inquisition, which was where you could torture people into submission to find out, force them to recant. The Pope set up the Index of Prohibited Books, which totally backfired in his face. Because he made a list of books that people were not allowed to read. Guess who couldn't wait to get their hands on this list? The printers. Because any book that was on this list shot to the top of the bestseller list. <laughs> this is still, if you read a book published by a Catholic publishing house, it still says this is authorized by the Pope, which goes back to books that were either authorized or forbidden. Something else happened was the formation of the Jesuits, who played a huge role for a couple hundred years, from about the middle of the 1500s to the middle of the 1700s. A man by the name of Ignatius of Loyola fought in one of the first wars under Charles V in that first war with France. A cannonball in severely injured his leg and he had to convalesce at a monastery. He liked to read these chivalric romances about knights and maidens. And he was discouraged to find, though, that all he could find in this monastery was women's books, which, like, the imitation of Christ, all the devotional books. <laughs> but because that was all he could read, he was greatly impacted by these books, especially the imitation of Christ. And he devoted his life to God's service. He relearned Latin, he went back to school, he founded a group of brothers, they called themselves the Society of Jesus, who wanted to turn their hearts towards God by meditating, by using their imagination. They saw salvation as we either in this life, we either choose God or we choose Satan, because Satan's always lying to us and God's always reaching out to us. The way we can make it easier to choose God over Satan is by meditating, using our imagination to think about the sacrifice of Christ, think about his servanthood, think about his glory, think about the horrors of hell, and if we did that, our hearts would be turned towards God. Ignatius of Loyola said, you know, we need to pray as though everything depended on God, but we need to act as if everything depended on us. They wanted to form a holy order. Now, monks took three vows. Poverty, obedience, and chastity. One historian summed it up. No money, no funny, no honey. <laughs> now, in addition to this, they made a vow of obedience to the Pope. The Pope authorized this new order and the Pope, these Jesuits, kind of in, became the Pope's hitmen. During Elizabeth's reign, it was the Jesuits who were trying to come up with plots to overthrow her reign and put the rightful Queen Mary of Scots on the throne, which I will get to next session. But the Jesuits impacted people in three main, Europe in three main ways. One was through education. In order to become a Jesuit, you had to spend... 12 years of education. 
before you were fully a member of the order. So education was very important to them. These Jesuits also set up free schools. And this stemmed the spread of Protestantism apparently more than anything. Because poor Protestants who wanted an education for their kids would send their kids to Jesuit schools. And the Jesuits were said, you give me a, a boy till the age of 12 and I'll have him for life. Education. Another way was missions. The Jesuits were very mission-minded. They were the first ones to go down into the Orient and set up churches in Japan on the heels of Cortez or Pizarro in South America, or it was the Jesuits who were following the Catholics into the top part of North America. The Jesuits were very missionary-minded. And the third way the Jesuits had an impact was politics, because they would be the confessors for princes and kings, and just they were politically minded as far as willing to, be, to do dirty things for the advancement of the cause. But another way the Catholic Church responded was the Council of Trent, which ran for 18 years, the longest running council in church history. And it was on and off. Charles V wanted this council and the Pope wanted this council, but they were hoping for, to accomplish different things. Charles V wanted this council to achieve unity. So what, the, what Charles V wanted to attack was practices, the abuses of the bishops. The Pope wanted this council to abolish Lutheranism. He wanted to attack doctrine. He didn't, the Italians in the council didn't want to have to give up their sources of income and the corruption in the church. Anyway, they came to a, a compromise and the Council of Trent made official Catholic doctrine and they voted against every change that the Protestants had made. The Council of Trent said, no, you're not saved by faith alone. You're saved by works in addition to the grace that you receive from God. They ruled in favor of transubstantiation. They ruled in favor of pilgrimages and purgatory and relics and prayers to the saints. Just anything that is, any difference that has set the Roman Catholic Church apart from Protestant was reinforced at Trent. But Trent also did a lot to clean up the abuses. They said, no more absent bishops. Every bi no more ignorant clergy. Every bishop must set up a seminary in his diocese for the priests underneath him. They're very strict. So this totally breathed new life into the Roman Catholic Church and stopped the spread and, for good or for ill, strengthened it and I guess it, was, it would have been good in, in some areas, but it, it totally made the Catholic Church stronger. So we've already covered quite a bit. What are the three branches, the three main branches of Christianity? Um, Anabaptist, yep. and Lutheran, yep. and Reform. Reform. Very good. And so we've looked at the Catholic Counter-Reformation, We've looked at what Charles V did to intervene. Now we need to look quickly at the life of John Calvin. John Calvin was born in France. Let me just change the slide.
John Calvin was born, born in, looks like Noyan, but I don't know how it's pronounced. His father wanted him to be a clergy, sent him to school for that, and to pay for Calvin's schooling, he set him up as a benefactor. What this was, was as a young boy, at around nine, he was named the priest for the village. And all the income, the gifts, the, the inheritances, the tithes, went to John Calvin. John Calvin took part of this money and paid a priest to perform the, the mass and the funerals and the weddings. And he took the rest of his money and paid his way through school. Now something happened to his father. He had a falling out with the church. John Calvin's father was excommunicated. And, and John Calvin's father said to him, look, I don't want you entering this sleazy profession of being a clergy. Get something respectable. Be a lawyer. <laughs> so John Calvin switched his schooling and became a lawyer. At a, as an early teenager, he studied law at Paris. But then his father died in, when John Calvin was in his early teens, and he was now free to pursue whatever he wanted. He started getting caught up in the ideas of the French humanists, which were aimed at social reform, and he started getting excited about this. We do not know when John Calvin became a Protestant, or when he had his conversion experience. He doesn't pinpoint it. It was just a gradual process where he used to be a defender of the Pope and he started to become a defender of, of Protestant principles. Now, at first, the French were fine with the spread of Reformation, but somebody started attacking transubstantiation as idolatry. And someone even posted, a, they were um, posting posters on all over France, attacking mass. And someone even posted this on King Francois' bedroom door. He was upset, he saw this as a threat, and they started clamping down and persecuting these French Protestants who became known as the Huguenots. Calvin was forced to flee, and he fled to, it's not on there, Basil. While he was there, somehow in this fleeing, he became a Protestant. And he saw that his French brethren were getting killed. So he wanted to write a defense of Christianity, of Protestant principles, which he called the Institutes. The first chapter attack was arguing the new of the doctrine of God and salvation. The second chapter was the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The third chapter was on prayer. The fourth and fifth chapters were against true and false sacraments. And the fifth, the sixth chapter was on the freedom of the Christian, that he was not under the authority of corrupt clergy. His only authority was God's word. This was a brilliant piece of writing that spread out, it became a bestseller because it was a concise, clear exposition of Protestant principles. John Calvin wanted to go to Strasbourg where he wanted the life of a scholar. He was a shy person. He didn't like to deal with people. He just wanted the life of a scholar. There was a war that he had to, he couldn't take the direct route to Strasbourg, so he wanted to spend one night in Geneva. And he stayed there in disguise, at a, sounded in under a false name. 
A leader at Geneva, I kid you not, his name was Will Ferrell, <laughs> heard that the writer of the Institutes was staying in Geneva. He went to John Calvin, he said, look, you need to stay and help us with this reformation here. He said, look, I really don't want to. At this point, Will Ferrell got animated and upset and said, God will bring down curses upon you if you do not stay, if you neglect this church of Geneva. He was so afraid of that, he took this as God speaking to him, that he stayed in Geneva. Now, Geneva was an independent city. It was an Episcopal city, so its government was Catholic. But Reformation principles were making it into it. People were starting to read their Bibles, and they were actually shouting down priests during the Catholic service, saying, that's not how it's supposed to be done. That's not true. This passage says this. They were becoming familiar with it. And they actually overthrew the Catholic government. And they forced... It was run by three tiers of, of, of governments that were elected. There was four mayors, the small council of 25, and the large council of 200. This council, they got rid of all the priests, all the nuns, all the monks, and the population of Geneva decreased by about 10%. They sought the protection of a Swiss canton of Bern. They said, we will offer you military protection on the agreement that you become more Protestant. And they sent reformers in there to educate the Genevans. One of them was Will Farrell. So Calvin and Will Farrell, they mapped out some requirements for the city. They said, first thing we want to do is we want to educate the city. We want first a confession of faith that every citizen will sign, and we want a catechism that everybody will learn to memorize right from a young age. And we also want to have the power of excommunication, because if someone is resisting us morally, we want to be able to have the power of, of removing church membership from them. The, they were there for a couple years. Calvin was a diligent teacher. But the, it came to a head with the authorities when the authorities wanted the power of excommunication. All the other reform cities, it was the princes, it was the magistrates who had the power of, reform, of excommunication, and the reformers wanted to work under them. So they kicked Will Farrell and John Calvin out of Geneva. Calvin said, fine, I didn't want to be here anyway. He went to Strasbourg. There, he wanted to just be a scholar, but a man by the name of Martin Busser said, look, we need you to be a pastor here. And Calvin said, no, I don't want to be a pastor. So <laughs> Martin Busser said, don't commit the sin of Jonah. You're going to get face God's judgment again. <laughs> so he said, okay. So he, <laughs> he learned a lot about the four offices of the church, which I will get to later, which he instituted later on in his life. While he was in... Strasbourg, he had much more freedoms to institute his vision for what the church should look like. But people said, you know, as a single man, you look Catholic. You need to be married. He said, I don't really want to be married. They said, you need to be married. So he said, okay. Being the romantic French and all that, he said, here's my list of qualifications. Find someone that fits it. And then I'll do a secondary interview later. So Martin Busser was rounding up candidates. 
But it turns out that there was a man who was dying of a sickness. They were an Anabaptist couple with two small daughters. John Calvin became friends with them, converted them from their Anabaptist beliefs to the Reformed faith, and he died, the, the husband died, and John Calvin ended up marrying the widow, Idoletta. And later on, with much ardent love, he said, she never interfered with my work. <laughs> he was shy about his feelings, so it's probably, he probably had more romantic things to say about her, he just didn't want, that's about the nicest thing we can find. <laughs> Of his, But apparently he did love her. She did give birth to one son who died a few months later. She had poor health and she only lived for seven years. About this time, the Catholic Counter-Reformation was happening and a cardinal by the name of Cedaletto wrote a letter to the Geneva people urging them back to the Catholic faith, warning them that they were imperiling their souls by this Protestant faith. So they came to John Calvin on their hands and knees and said, could you, we don't have any able theologians in our town. Could you write up a response to say the letter for us? So he did. And they were so impressed with it that they invited him back to Geneva. He said, are you kidding me? No way. So they said, well, what would it take? So I heard conflicting report. I read conflicting reports, but one report said, Will Farrell came with a thundering letter saying you're imperiling your soul again if you don't go back. The other report said that John Calvin said, look, give me a large house, 500 liters of wine a year, and free reign. Either way, the Genevans accepted John Calvin back, and he, he went right back. He'd been gone for three years, but he stepped into the pulpit and said, the last time I was with you, I ended up in this passage. Let's turn to the next passage. And he continued his lectures as if he had never left the city. Uh, during this time, John Calvin established four offices of the church. For him, for the church to succeed, it needed to institutionalize. The first institution was that of pastor. The pastor's job was to preach and to perform baptism and communion. Those were the two things, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of God's word, and the sacraments. That was, the, that was what made a church a church to John Calvin. The second office was that of teacher, which was seminaries in which you equipped future missionaries and future pastors. The third office was that of elder, which involved church discipline. And the fourth office was that of deacon, which took care of the social needs. He put together support groups for pastors. He set up seminaries. These seminaries trained French missionaries and pastors who went all over the place. Uh, this was a huge place. Uh, like when um, people fled from France, the persecution in France, they would come to Geneva. And when people fled from England under Bloody Mary, they would come to Geneva, and they learned a lot about John Calvin's views and his style of community and how he wanted a state run. The Puritans were people who came from Geneva. The church elders had a committee called the Consistory. I think I pronounced that right. Anyway, it was a committee where if anybody 
beat their wife or beat up their husband or drank or gambled or committed adultery or fornicated or swore, they could be brought before the consistory and the elders of the city would deal with this either by asking that they do a public confession in church or that they would be excommunicated or sometimes they would just get a good tongue lashing an urging from John Calvin who had a sharp tongue it worked the society was a safe place where the rest of Europe they were ravaged by robberies and disease Geneva was a city of light John Knox said it was the most perfect school of Christ when he visited there. John Calvin in his services did not want instruments in church. And I, I, I don't have too much time to get into this, but basically he had four principles of worship. The first one, he wanted the word to be central, the word of God. He, he, he took Augustine's theory, only what God has said about himself is worthy to be spoken of God. So where to us we go, to me, God is like a waterfall, a warm cloud, a warm drink, and we just, it's very easy for us to meditate on what God is like. To John Calvin, only thing that was worthy to be said of God was what God said about himself. So the only thing that Genevan sang was the Psalms because that was the only words or lyrics that were worthy of God. The next thing that John Calvin wanted was simplicity. He thought our hearts are so prone to be pleasing ourselves that we start making an idol out of the experience of worship rather than actually worshiping God. And we start to please the senses. And in the Roman Catholic Church, they had candles, they had scents, they had uh, choirs. It was very sensual experience repealed to the senses John Calvin said no you're you're worshiping an idol if you could taste worship for the real God you would find that that's a much deeper joy than any counterfeit he also knew that Satan wanted to give us forms of worship that that were idolatrous that detracted us away from God and John Calvin saw that music was very powerful to move people away from God or towards God. So he banned the use of instruments in the church. One was because he wanted simplicity. He wanted no props. He didn't want us just enjoying the sounds of the music. He wanted us actually our, our mind connecting with God. And he wanted, he actually said that the New Testament outlaws the use of music. He had a very, what I consider a weak scriptural argument, but he said, Scripture commands us to speak only in a known tongue, and he thought that the instruments had their own tongue, and so that they were speaking in an unknown tongue, and who knows what... I mean, Christians today who reject rock music, they think, don't you realize that part of your worship is, is worshiping Satan, while part of you is worshiping God in the lyrics? So it's, it's kind of a similar idea. He also said that God ways are so different from ours that whatever brings the most pleasure to us is most loathsome to God. I see in these things that here's a man who was kind of reactionary to the Catholic Church and I think that clouded his view. Look at me debating and demeaning John Calvin. Like, can you believe it? 
one of the greatest theologians. So, let me continue on with my foolishness. <laughs> but, I also see in John Calvin as a man who was passionate about God. And everything was revolved around God. He wanted God to be central in every area of life. And he wanted to make sure that when you were worshipping, you were worshipping in spirit and in truth. He, want, he also wanted reverence in worship and no props. Those were the other, just to round out the four points. So, uh, the word must be central. Um, no props, moderation, and another one. How's that for a view? <laughs> you get the idea though. I don't want to spend too much time on that. But I just found that was kind of an interesting look. And John Calvin's views on worship shaped branches of Christianity for many years. And there's still reformed branches that don't have instruments in church. But there's some of the, the rationale between them. Another thing that John Calvin was very passionate about was the sovereignty of God. But John Calvin, who has become known for a contentious use of the doctrine of God's sovereignty, for John Calvin, he said, this is the doctrine that gives us joy, that gives us peace. He said, think about how miserable and scary life is if you don't have the doctrine of God's sovereignty. You never know when you're going to fall prey to disease or murder or tragedy of some kind. He said, if you fully grasp that God is sovereign, you will be filled with joy and happiness and peace. For John Calvin in the Psalms, he saw that the Psalms were full of this doctrine that God is sovereign. He saw that all of mankind is, has a, a duty to their creator. It's not just Christians. It's not just optional whether I feel like obeying God today. He said every man who's born owes God their breath. Every man who's born owes complete obedience. Let's not talk about a, a works-faith controversy. If you're created by God, you have a duty to obey God's life, to obey God's law, sorry. He also thought that this was a source of great joy, and he also saw that this would energize your prayer life. Because if you really thought that God had the power to move hearts of men and kings, it made prayer worthwhile. No use praying to a weak deity who can't affect things anyway. John Calvin also wrote on predestination, but this was not something he wanted to get into in the congregation because he knew that we have, we have a tendency to question God. He only wanted to preach what God had revealed. But a man by the name of Jerome Balzac, one Sunday when Calvin was supposed to be traveling, he got up in church and started attacking John Calvin's views on predestination and talking about how horrible it was that God was not saving some people when he had the power to save them. He didn't realize that John Calvin had snuck in the back late, come back from his trip early. So John Calvin had a public debate with Jerome Balsek, which kind of forced Calvin, kind of highlighted some of his ideas, and some people, you actually teach that? That's, that's pretty scary. I mean, and ever since then, there's been a lot of people who react against Calvinism because they don't understand it. Jerome Balzac, by the way, converted back to Catholicism and wrote a biography of Luther just absolutely attacking him. It was irrational. It accused Calvin of being a womanizer and a homosexual. So, I mean, it, 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 it's, yeah, it's, it doesn't work. But that's why it's just proof that it was not a, a rational attack on John Calvin. But for John Calvin, what was important 
was that Jesus was an actual savior and not just a potential savior. He said, because if Jesus just made salvation possible for us, and now it's up to free choice, he had too low a human, he had so low a, a, a bar ability of the will. Who of us is actually can trust in our salvation if Jesus only made salvation possible? And it's up, for, up, it's, um, up to us to choose it. He said, I want Jesus to be an actual savior. And he made a very biblical case for it. Um, John Calvin's also known, by the way, for the murder of Michael Servetus, who was a doctor who wrote against the Trinity. And he was actually, want, he would have been wanted, or, or there was a warrant out for his life in all of Europe. It was a capital crime to attack the Trinity all over Europe. Uh, the council said, we need to execute him by burning. And John Calvin said, well, can you, I, I consent to this, but could you at least just behead him? That's much quicker than being burned at the stake. And Michael Servetus, who, he said that Jesus was created. So when he said, just before he was burned at the stake, he said, Jesus, son of the eternal God, please save me. Theodore Beza, who was a follower of Calvin and wrote a nicer biography, was at the execution. And he said, if Michael Servetus had only said, eternal son of God, please save me, none of this would have been an issue. So we get a glimpse into the religious intolerance, but we also see that to their mindset, heresy was worse than murder because murder only killed the body. Heresy killed the soul. But John Calvin, unfairly, for people who want to paint this picture of John Calvin, you realize what an intolerant religious bigot he was, burning this open-minded doctor, Michael Servetus? That's a very incomplete picture about what happened. John Calvin continued to faithfully serve Geneva. He wrote countless letters to people who had questions. <laughs> he confided to one person a letter, my hand hurts so much from writing, that the thought of writing another letter is completely repulsive to me. But he continued in his work dictating the commentary of Joshua on his deathbed. He wrote about a commentary a year, continued to preach every other day, every other week, but a lot. His commentaries today are still terrific. We, our church has been going through 2 Corinthians, and I downloaded his commentaries on 2 Corinthians. It's incredibly helpful. He just writes very clear and in a way that reaches the heart. So that's Calvinism. John Calvin died at the age of 54 of a natural death. Now you've heard, what's the, the counter argument to Calvinism? Arminianism. In the early 1600s, in the Netherlands, there was a Dutch follower of John Calvin named Jacob Arminius. Now, one of the historians I read said that if you have one, one Dutchman, you have a theologian. If you have two Dutchmen, you have a church. If you have three Dutchmen, you have a church split. And I think there's some truth to that. <laughs> but Jacob Arminius loved the writings of John Calvin. I don't remember the exact quote, but he had some ridiculous uh, praise of the writings of John Calvin. A huge admirer of John Calvin. Somebody in Jacob Arminius' circle was attacking the principles of 
predestination that John Calvin spoke. And they said, they said, Jacob, could you refute these principles for us? So he did this deep study, and the more he got into it, the more he felt uncomfortable with some of John Calvin's views on predestination. And he actually changed his mind and started attacking some of John Calvin's views. He died, but a group of Dutch people continued on this process, and they came up with five points of Arminian theology. One that they, I don't remember all of them, but they consisted of Jesus died for everybody, not just a few. We can walk away from God. We can resist God. We can, God has made salvation available to everybody. And this was starting to uh, be a divisive split in the church. So they called the best reform minds around 1618, I think, somewhere in that vicinity, for the Council of Dort. And these theologians who came from all over Europe came up with five points of Calvinism, which is the tulip. Total depravity, unlimited atonement, no, <laughs> um, no, it's not unlimited, it's unconditional, unconditional election, yes, the tulip, so unconditional election, Lim the L stands for limited atonement, the I stands for irresistible grace, God can choose anybody and when he does, that person has no resisting him, and the perseverance of the state, saints. That's how Calvinism and Arminianism came to be the branches. Okay, I'm going to, here's, it's uh, 20 to 12, uh, 20 to 11. I'm going to try to spend about 10 minutes talking about the Reformation in France. It's going to mean a short break. So if we could come back, uh, just use the bathroom, stretch your legs, and then we'll try to get into the third session. I'm sorry, but I'll try to, I'll try to make this short. In France, the king had a very special position. He was very linked with the religion. He saw himself as the defender of the faith against heresy. Now, the French were more concerned about the doctrine of transubstantiation being attacked than they were about justification by faith. Because for them, transubstantiation was about the power. The minister had the power to change the elements. And it became kind of a symbol for the power that Christ had. So when transubstantiation was attacked as blasphemy, they started doing something. But Protestantism spread all over France. And it led to a series of religious wars between the Huguenots, which were the, the Protestants, and the Roman Catholics. And it would, there was a bloody mess, and they would flare up, and then they would dissipate. Basically, Protestants would attack lands, the Catholics would attack people. Now remember Francis I, the king who was a thorn in the side to Charles V? His son was named Henry II, married to a woman named Catherine of Medici, Catherine de Medici. Catherine could not have kids for a long time, and it was very difficult for her. She ended up having, I think, six kids. Her first child was named Francois II, who was betrothed to Mary, Queen of Scots, when they were 
three and four. They ended up marrying when they were about 14 or 15. Henry II, I'm sorry, this is so much to try to grasp. Henry II was jousting and had a splinter go through his eye and into his brain, which is not good for anybody's health. <laughs> he expired shortly after, making Francis or Francois II the king, husband of Mary, the rightful queen of Scots, who we will learn more about next time. He was a sickly, weak-minded boy, because he was only 16, controlled by powerful French forces. The family of Guise, and that is how you pronounce it. I know it sounds like I'm mispronouncing it, but that's how you pronounce it. It's spelled like Guise, but it's the family of Guise. And Mary, Queen of Scots, mother was of the family of Guise. The Guise were very pro-Catholic. Now, Francis II lived only about a year, then he died. So Mary, Queen of Scots, went back to Scotland where she became the Queen of there, the Queen of Scotland. The sec this left Charles IX, who was only nine years old at the time, as the next King of France. This gave Catherine de' Medici power to rule when your king's only nine years old. He's a little bit manipulatable. She wanted to bring an end to these religious wars that were tearing up her kingdom. So in 1572, she proposed a marriage between Protestant Prince Henry of Navarre and her daughter, Margaret. They invited all the Protestants to Paris and they had a week, a week of celebration, Protestants and Catholics. Charles at this time was a young man in his early 20s, and one of his best friends was a man by the name of Gaspard Colony, who was the head of his army. Colony was a Protestant. On Friday, five days after the wedding, Colony was coming back from a meeting of the king, and he was shot at. We're not too sure who shot him. Maybe a member of the Guise family. He didn't die but he was convalescing. The Protestants were angry. Who shot our Protestant leader here? Right when we were supposed to be, this was a celebration of reconciliation. Charles said, I don't know. I'll look into it. But Catherine de' Medici said, went to Charles in private and said, the Protestants are planning a huge uprising to kill you. We, don't, we doubt it was true, but she convinced Charles of that. He said, if that's the case, murder, colony. So they went into Colony's bed where he was convalescing. They killed him, they threw him out the window, they cut off his head and his hands, and they dragged him through the streets, and they set off a Protestant bloodbath. That day, between one to 2,000 Protestants were killed in Paris. All these people who had come, they were just wiped out. The streets of Paris ran red with blood. And this spread all over France. Within a few days, something like 30, 20 to 30,000 Huguenots had been killed. Philip II, when he heard the news, he rejoiced. The Pope, when he heard it, he ordered a hymn sung to God in praise and a medallion. Henry of Navarre, the Protestant, because his life was at stake, he abjured, which meant he converted to, back to Roman Catholicism. This was the third time he had switched religions. He stayed in the court. He had a miserable marriage to Margaret. 
That event, by the way, is called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which greatly hindered the cause of Protestantism. Three years later, Henry of Navarre escaped and went back to Navarre, where he became a Protestant again, and tried to convince people that he was a Protestant. Charles IX died, and his next brother was in line, Henry III, or Henri III, who was effeminate, most likely homosexual. When they put the crown on his head, he screamed that it was hurting. That's the type of man he was. He had no heirs. I guess that's what happens when you're a homosexual. So the, the next person was a distant relative, Henry of Navarre. So he named Henry of Navarre his successor. Henry III, who tried to woo <laughs> Queen Elizabeth, by the way, was killed by a deranged monk, which left Henry of Navarre to become Henry IV, who went on to become one of the most beloved kings of France. He had terrible body odor, though. When he married, his wife drenched herself in perfume, hoping that that would help. It didn't. He, was, he had tons of mistresses. <laughs> when he brought his wife into the castle, he said, Honey, I'd like you to meet my mistress. She's going to serve you in any way you would like. Now curtsy, mistress, and she wouldn't, so she had to be forcibly curtsied. Henry of Navarre gave birth to Louis XIII. Louis XIII gave birth to Louis XIV, who had the long reign in France called himself the Sun King, was the one who built the Palace of Versailles, also the one who revoked, who outlawed Protestantism in France, caused hundreds of thousands of Protestants to leave the country, crippling the French economy. And Henry of Navarre had a problem when he first became king. He knew that no, the Paris would not accept a Protestant king because part of the king's role is to attack heresy. And Protestantism is a heresy, so we can't have a heretic king defending against heresy. So Henry of Navarre is rumored to have said something like, Paris is worth the mass, and he converted again to Catholicism. Which the Catholics did not accept as genuine. But Henry finally brought an end to the religious wars by signing the Edict of Nantes, which gave religious freedom to the Protestants, which was in effect until Louis XIV. So, there's eight minutes of French history. <laughs>